October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast, episode 29, Jones and Wags. Last time, we talked about the General Conference president, the one and only George Ida Butler, heading to Europe. We talked about D.M. Canwright's return to the ministry yet again. How many times is that? And we closed talking about Ellen White's own trip to Europe, which she really didn't want to do, but come on, it's Europe. And she ended up having a great time for two years. And that's where we left her. Now, we're building a story arc over the next few episodes that's going to culminate in the greatest crisis the Adventist Church has ever seen, the curse and the blessing of the 1888 General Conference, the Adventist Civil War, Iron Man against Captain America, or more prosaically, Ellet J. Wagner and Alonzo T. Jones against George Ida Butler and Uriah Smith. In 1895, way ahead of where we are right now in this podcast, Ellen White would write to a man who she thought was on the wrong side of this war. She wrote, quote, My brother, why do you cherish such bitterness against Elder A.T. Jones and Elder Wagner? It is for the same reason Cain hated Abel. Cain refused to heed the instruction of God. God has given Brother Jones and Wagner a message for the people. You do not believe that God has upheld them, but he has given them precious light, and their message has fed the people of God. When you reject the message borne by these men, you reject Christ. End quote. So this was serious. The life work, even the salvation of many Adventists, seemed to rest on what stand they took during the Adventist Civil War. To reject the message of Jones and Wagner was to reject Christ. So who on earth were Jones and Wagner? They really couldn't have been two more different people. E.J. Wagner was the son of J.H. Wagner, who was one of those leading men in the movement since way back in the 1850s. He was bookish and quiet, second-generation Adventist. A.T. Jones was from the outside, a military man of action and sharp wit. Wagner looks on the shorter side while Jones stood nearly six feet tall. And like many a preacher's kid, Wagner took longer than Jones to catch on in the movement that he grew up in. The insider and the outsider, the introvert and the extrovert, the Adventist for life and the recent convert found each other at just the right time, and the consequence of their combination was explosive. Let's introduce Jones first. Jones was born in Rock Hill, Ohio, located in the southernmost tip of the state. This was back in April 1850, when James White was first printing The Present Truth from Oswego, New York. Rock Hill was barely more than a large clearing in a forest. And Jones stuck around in Rock Hill until he turned 20. Then he enlisted in the army and served out west in skirmishes against the Native Americans. That was 1870. E.J. Wagner was born in the shadow of his father, who was a giant in the movement. His father was 35 when Ellett was born, the sixth of ten children. And once Joseph Harvey Wagner heard the message in 1851, he was sold out for it. He wrote a number of books. He was on the committee to choose the name Seventh-day Adventist. He moved with the Whites to California in 1875 to be an editor of Signs of the Times. 
and other publications out there. But Jones and Wagner didn't meet out west in the 1870s. Jones would leave the army in the mid-1870s, was baptized into the church in Walla Walla, Washington. Say that ten times fast. He tried his hand at preaching shortly after his baptism, much like D.M. Canwright did. These early Adventists didn't mess around. It was all hands on deck at all times. And Jones's attempt to preach through Daniel 2, which really is a staple of Adventist preaching even to this day, it wasn't exactly a glowing success. By his own recollection, some 40 years later, Jones says that he emptied his head of everything he knew about Daniel 2 in 20 minutes and that another preacher had to finish his sermon. In 20 years' time, Ellen White would be warning Jones against preaching such long, 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 long sermons. So 20 minutes is a fair sermon today, but it's not a mistake Jones was going to repeat again. Having spent his life in rural Ohio, Jones's few years in the army gave him a taste for how big the world was, and it made Jones keenly feel his need for an advanced education. He wanted to go to Battle Creek College in particular. Now, Ellen White wanted him to go to Battle Creek College, too. Jones caught her attention in 1878, and she wrote to her husband, James, that Jones would be a great worker if only he had a mentor. The man who baptized Jones, Isaac Van Horn, wasn't the best, she confessed. Ellen really wished that J.H. Wagner hadn't gone back east for the moment. So Jones was stuck with Isaac Van Horn as a mentor. He was also stuck with Van Horn as a brother-in-law because Jones ended up marrying the sister of Van Horn's wife. Work up in the Pacific Northwest was one of the last and lonely frontiers as the 1870s turned into the 1880s. And it wasn't until 1889, by the way, that Washington would officially become a state. James seemed unwilling to part with the young man, and even after James's death, the church did their best to keep Jones in the West. In 1877, Jones had first wished to go to Battle Creek College, but was told to keep proving himself out there in the Northwest. Meanwhile, Ellet J. Wagner had gone to Battle Creek College, had cozied up to Willie White, and was about to graduate from medical school in Brooklyn, New York. Young Wagner hadn't been stranded in a corner of the country, had he? There were some perks to being the son of a pioneer. The worst that Wagner had to do was to spend a year in Iowa. But even there, he was making connections. George Ida Butler was the president of the conference at the time, and he worked with other ministers there who would later go on to hold high office, including another general conference president. Jones knew he needed to prove himself in Washington if he wanted to get out of Washington. He begged Ellen to come visit the work in Washington, hoping she could do some good out there, help his church grow, because he knew how the system worked. If the general conference saw his church grow and how hard he was working, well, then that was his ticket out of there. He worked hard. He took on jobs to buy building materials and then built the first Adventist church where he lived with his own hands. He then convinced the non-Adventist town folk to buy a bell for this church. And that was the kind of stuff a minister was expected to do. The problem is, is it was hard to be noticed when you're stuck in the corner. So Jones did the Adventist thing and started writing. He wrote articles for the Review, of course, but he also started writing to Willie, deftly mentioning 
what he had accomplished and suggesting that, you know, if you think you might be ready for a move somewhere, you might casually mention it to your mom, you know? Now, whether Willie did or not, we don't know, but Jones was finally out of the corner in 1884. He didn't go to Battle Creek, however, but he was sent to Northern California, which was probably the second best place to be as far as Adventist centers go. And rather than enrolling as a student at Healdsburg College, he ended up teaching there. Jones's first article got the front page of the review. He emerged onto the Adventist scene with 10 years of ministry under his belt, showing a good grasp of Adventist theology and a fighting spirit. One of his lifelong targets were attempts by Christian groups to get America declared a Christian nation, and then to pass a law requiring people to observe Sunday in some way, shape, or form. This was a very real threat in the 1880s and 90s, as strange, or maybe not so strange, as that may sound now. So Jones's first articles weren't pieces on the love of God or the need for forgiveness. It wasn't on a safe topic, so to speak, like why Adventists should keep Sabbath. The political storm clouds were coming, and Jones positioned himself on an issue that would gain increasing prominence in the Adventist world. When you read him, he sounds like a man aiming for distinction. His style is very logical, but provocative and a wee bit spicy. He scoffs when these organizations who want Christian laws in America reassure minority groups like Adventists that the laws won't hurt them at all. If I had hold of the bar which kept a tiger in his cage, Jones wrote, and was doing my very best to remove that bar and let the tiger loose, these gentlemen would not think it a very comforting assurance if I should say, Oh, dear sirs, never fear, I will not hurt a hair of your heads, and then slip the bar and let the tiger loose upon them. Rhetorical flourishes like that were designed to be memorable. They made a splash. He accused such organizations of trying to, quote, out-Jesuit the Jesuits, referring to that order of Catholics who had been eager to lead the Counter-Reformation. Jones's colorful commentary and command of the language was clear, and so was his learning. He quoted from Gibbons and Milton and used foreign words from time to time as well. In these early writings, we clearly see advanced signs of where Jones was going in life. He was intensely motivated, which was great when he had the right ideas in his head and bad when he didn't. He was an excellent writer, persuasive personality as well, and when it came to writing against those political organizations, the readers of the review loved his barbs, like that bit about the tiger. But he could also be sharp with his own members, which didn't go very well. He was strong-willed, self-confident, very good communicator. He could keep the rougher aspects of his personality in check in those early days because he knew his need of the church's approval, and he knew what he had to do to get that approval. It was Jones's articles that particularly impressed J.H. Wagner, and soon enough, both Jones and Ellett J. Wagner were working at the Pacific Press in California. The younger Wagner and Jones became fast friends, and so the stage was set for an historic conflict within the church between East and West, culminating in 1888. This civil war was not a physical war, obviously. It's best understood as a perfect storm of events. The external threat in the 1880s were the Sunday laws. Now, Sunday laws were various city or state ordinances that required, at the least, businesses to be closed on Sunday. 
By the early and mid-1800s, they were mostly ignored in most of the country, but in the late 1870s, various groups were trying to get stronger Sunday laws on the books and to get them enforced. The engine behind this was the NRA, not the Bang Bang NRA, but the National Reform Association. Well, that sounds pleasant, right? The National Reform Association was basically a coalition of Christians who wanted to end slavery, who promoted temperance reform, and who wanted to stop the moral drift that they saw in American society. Now, in that, Adventists were 100% on board, no problem whatsoever. But part of the way they wanted to make America moral again was a constitutional amendment declaring America a Christian nation. They would keep trying at that one. And in the meantime, they would try and pass Sunday laws wherever they could. If businesses couldn't be open on Sunday, then it's easier to go to church, right? One Christian lobbyist wrote that, quote, With the Sabbath, by that he meant Sunday, our Christianity and our country stand or fall, end quote. So you get the pressure that these groups were putting on Congress or putting on state legislatures. Now you may ask, how on earth such a law would be legal? I mean, isn't that like shoving Christianity down everyone's throats? Well, that was the question of a California businessman who fought the law all the way to the California Supreme Court. Backers of the law argued that it wasn't religious in nature. No one was telling you that you had to go to church. If the citizens of a town or a state wanted it, then the law reflected the will of the people not to want to work every day of the week. The word weekend never even made it into the dictionary until 1879, by the way. It was still a new idea at this point. So what's wrong with a law requiring a day off? This defense of Sunday laws has so far proved invincible. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1961 that Sunday laws have no religious purpose anymore and that their goal is to improve the, quote, health, safety, recreation, and general well-being, end quote, of citizens. One goal of these laws was to force primarily fathers to spend more time with their families on Sundays, and since the laws often required bars to close, all the better. Now, these laws deeply bothered Adventists, whose prophetic interpretation had seen a national Sunday law at the heart of the tribulation before Jesus comes. Doesn't Revelation 13 describe widespread religious persecution just before Jesus returns? That these laws were surging once more was only a sign of how close they were to the end. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you have believed this for 30 or 40 years, that someday there's going to be a national Sunday law that will be used to persecute Adventists and others just before Jesus comes. Then you crack open your copy of the Review in 1882 and see a note that Willie White was just arrested in Oakland for running the Pacific Press on Sunday. Suddenly things seem very real and very urgent. Now Willie was apparently released, we don't know all the details. That particular California Sunday law was successfully ignored and it drove Adventists in droves to the polls to vote for Democrats in the next election because the Democrats promised to repeal it, which they did in 1883. Adventists didn't fail to notice that the state Supreme Court upheld the law as constitutional. So this was far from over. Maybe a few hundred Adventists across the country would eventually be arrested in violation of these 
laws, some of them on chain gangs doing hard labor. This was the external challenge to the church in the 1880s. The Sunday laws would culminate in 1888 when a United States senator proposed a national Sunday law for the first time. What made it even more alarming was that a Roman Catholic cardinal, James Gibbons, very famous, signed a petition of more than 14 million signatures in favor of such a law. Of course, when E.J. Wagner did the math, he realized that the petition leaders had assumed that Cardinal Gibbons represented all 7 million Catholics in America. And regardless, Avenus faced the black and white that Catholics and Protestants were enthusiastically working together to pass a law that would likely be used to oppress them, just as the Bible seemed to predict. The mounting internal challenges were many. From the final defection of D.M. Canwright, one of the church's most prominent ministers, in 1887, just a few years away, to questions that Jones and Wagner began to raise. Now, there were two major issues that Jones and Wagner were bringing up that deeply shook the church leadership. Both were theological issues. One was in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. The Old Testament issue concerned the ten horns of the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Are you still awake? Adventists have interpreted the beast as representing the Roman Empire for reasons that go well beyond the scope of this podcast. The ten horns on this beast represent the ten kingdoms which inherited the Western Roman Empire. Now, the 1884 General Conference asked A.T. Jones to research the history of these tribes so that this theological interpretation could rest on a firmer historical foundation. Uriah Smith gave his blessing to the project. And remember that Uriah Smith literally wrote the book on Daniel and Revelation as far as Adventists were concerned. His interpretation was considered the unofficial standard and, among a number of Adventists today, still is. And Smith gave his blessing to Jones in this project. I think Smith probably looked at Jones as his graduate assistant, assigned him this difficult research project, see what he could come up with. Smith likened Jones's chances to trying to put a house together after it had been blown up by dynamite. So really, saying that he was trying to find a needle in the haystack would have been an improvement of his odds. Uriah Smith's commentary on Daniel and Revelation was really a masterpiece, Smith drew from many sources, from Machiavelli to Isaac Newton. His grasp of history was profound for his day. The book is a beautiful blend of accessibility and scholarship, really the aspiration of so many writers. The book tells a simple historical narrative that runs from cover to cover so that anyone could grasp its basic argument, especially as it related to the rise and corruption of the papacy. It was the ultimate apologetic resource for Adventism. So when Jones did his own research and concluded that Smith was wrong on one of the horns, it mattered. Not because getting those ten kingdoms right was of paramount importance. It wasn't. The Adventist focus was always on the little horn that followed them. But Jones's correction sent the message that this book could be corrected. But if the book that represents Adventism in a nutshell could be wrong, could be corrected, couldn't Adventism be wrong too? So Uriah Smith was ticked off. 
He wrote a letter to Jones chastising the younger man's decision to publish his conclusions without consulting him. Well, actually, he had tried to consult him, but Smith said that he was too busy and had no time to look into it. Smith said that Attila's Huns were one of the ten tribes, and Jones claimed that it was the Alemanni instead. I'm telling you that so that Uriah Smith's irate letter makes more sense, which I'm now going to read. This is what Smith wrote. If the Huns are not to be reckoned as one of the ten, I think we are yet 10% short on the fulfillment of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. You can readily imagine what the effect would be if our preachers, after presenting the ten kingdoms as they have for the past 40 years, should now change upon a point which has been considered so well established that it has never excited a dissenting voice nor called forth a challenge from anyone. Thousands would instantly notice the change and say, Oh, now you find that you are mistaken on what you had considered one of your clearest points. And so if we give you time enough, you will probably come to acknowledge finally that you are mistaken on everything. Thus the tendency would be to unsettle upon all points and create confusion. You'll notice that Smith doesn't defend his position. If Smith just could have said, Oh yeah, good call, Jones, you're right on that one. It would have saved so much trouble. But Smith warned that what Jones was doing wasn't adjusting one small detail to make the Adventist interpretation stronger. No, Jones was doing nothing less than trying to destroy Adventism itself. Smith went for the nuclear option. Straight away. How can you have civil dialogue after implying that your opponent is trying to destroy the entire church? How you characterize your opponent in a debate matters. Luther, quite sincerely, said, Hey, I think the way that these indulgences are being handled is wrong. Can we talk about it? And what was the reply from the medieval church? We have a boar in the vineyard. Well, boars destroy vineyards. They have no positive value. How do you get them out of the vineyard? You hunt them, you kill them. And such heavy-handed language is probably meant to cow your opponent into submission, but it didn't work with Luther. It did the opposite, and it certainly didn't work with Jones either. Jones shot back a letter to Uriah Smith saying, Look, our big issue right now is these Sunday laws. You say that your interpretation of these ten horns hasn't been questioned in 40 years, but what do you think will happen when more Sunday laws put the spotlight on Adventists and the brilliant thinkers in society start scrutinizing our beliefs? This is what Jones said, quote, We shall then to these men have to present some better reason for our faith than it has been preached for 40 years, end quote. Jones was right, of course. But then he went for a low blow by suggesting that Uriah Smith take the time to reread his book, and correct all the other errors that every well-informed person could see were wrong. So while Smith and Jones were trading cannon fire, Jones once more reached for a secret weapon, Willie White. He hoped, I think, that Ellen White's son would get him out of Washington, yes, and now he hoped her son would side with him against Smith. Willie was in Europe with his mom, of course, but Jones nevertheless sent him a collection of articles that he had published in Signs on the Ten Horns. Willie found them very persuasive. He agreed with Jones. 
He didn't see what the big deal was, why Uriah Smith was all fired up. But while he and his mother would never completely join one side or the other, their sympathies were always with Jones and Wagner. They constantly wondered why this issue should ever be such a big deal. The big deal it was. Where was James White when you needed him the most? Certainly the onslaught of Sunday laws had a lot to do with the tension. If these laws meant that Jesus was coming soon, then why on earth are we changing our beliefs at the 11th hour and risking unsettling a lot of faithful people? God has clearly blessed us these past 40 years. And doesn't the Bible promise that scoffers will come in the last days? People who cast doubts? People whose goal it is to derail us just before we cross the finish line? Hmm. And you detect generational issues between Smith and Jones, too. Smith wanted to preserve the old ways, and Jones was embarrassed that some of the old ways weren't intellectually credible in the eyes of the world. And maybe there was a little pride involved for both men as well. Smith, in trying to defend his position as the authority of prophecy, and Jones trying to carve out a distinguished spot for himself. Now, Smith would always remain the authority in prophecy as long as he lived, and Jones would eventually carve out a spot for himself, just not in prophecy. If Smith's Daniel and Revelation book represented Adventism as a whole, then the Ten Horns issue represented the larger upcoming war in a nutshell. It centered on this question, can Adventism self-correct and still be Adventist? Or, to put it a different way, what in Adventism is essential to its identity and what isn't? What's at the core? What makes somebody an Adventist? With the Sunday laws coming down on Adventists across the country and a feud between the editor of Science of the Times and the venerable editor of the Adventist Review and Herald, a new battle was about to commence between E.J. Wagner and the General Conference President, George Ida Butler. And if people, if people could agree that the Ten Horns were a tiny issue, well, the upcoming battle launched an Adventist Civil War. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, 
We don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.